0: and welcome back to the demon podcast my name is andy and in a moment bin man and i will be joined by the high performance manager of the melbourne football club selwyn griffith to chat about the health and fitness of the demons be sure to subscribe to the demon podcast to be notified when a new episode drops we do a weekly wrap-up of each match as well as the occasional interview with demon players and staff past and present Check out our recent interview with former Magpie and new Demon recruit Brodie Grundy in our archives. But first, Selwyn Griffith. Our guest tonight uh, is high-performance manager of the Melbourne Football Club. Prior to taking the role, he was head of strength and conditioning for the club under Darren Burgess. Before joining the Demons, he held a number of roles at the Brisbane Lions, including as an osteopath and performance coach. As High Performance Manager of the Demons, he oversees the team's sports science and sports medicine services, ensuring that our players are in peak physical condition every time they take the field. Welcome to the Demeland Podcast, Selwyn Griffith.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, Selwyn, as mentioned in the intro, your background is as an osteopath. Uh, How have you utilised those skills in uh, your current role?
1: Yeah, I think the the background of the medical knowledge has been a really sound foundation for uh, my current role, but also previously working in that return to play space. And so it just allows for um, a really collaborative approach with our, not only our performance team, but with our medical team to ensure that we're looking at, at every possible um, opportunity to take our group forward from a performance element while understanding that. We're in a sport that's high risk, Um, it's combative, uh, it's high intensity and and the training philosophy that we have uh, at the Melbourne Demons is a high intensity, uh, high volume training program as well. So having that understanding allows us to have really uh, collaborative discussions with our our medical team around how we're best mitigating against those injuries, but then also um, with our performance team around how we are building a holistic program to maintain resilience and robustness.
0: So and I'd like to get a bit of behind the scenes perspective of the inner workings of a part of a footy club that uh, us as supporters, we really don't get to see. And that's sort of like um, the medical and high performance department, how they work together. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into the managing of, say, an injury? For example, just a grade one or two uh, hamstring strain and granted injuries and treatments will differ from injury to injury and player to player. What's the process from... The sustaining of the injury a hammy in this case to identifying the issue, the rehab program through to rejoining full training, can you take us through that process from beginning to end? who looks after them at each stage? what type of program are they on away from the club who oversees them in rehab uh, and how closely are all the medical staff working um, to get you know the, the the goal or the outcome of them getting back onto the field as quick as possible?
1: Yeah, sure so. Obviously, if an injury is sustained, the, the primary um, assessment um, is from our head physiotherapist, uh, Daniel James, and then depending on which doctor we have there at the time, either Jacob Gibson or Laura Lowen, they'll be part of that assessment process. And so our first uh, point of call is just the clinical examination. How do they present? What was the mechanism? Uh, you know, obviously, every athlete um, and every injury is different, as you alluded to, and also. Uh, the mechanism uh, in how the injury occurred. You know, did it occur during a high-speed running effort? Did it occur as a gradual onset? Was it a sudden onset? Um, What's that athlete's previous experience of injury and or pain, their injury history? And that all then really comes into the initial management of that. You know, so if their clinical presentation is something that is on the milder end, they've got good strength, they've got good range of motion, If if we're talking about a muscle injury, as you said, then we definitely are looking at that um, and assessing the athlete based on their previous history. As uh, is this something that we require further imaging of to to give us a better um, indication of, of what the pathology is and, and what we could possibly be dealing with from a time frame perspective, or if a lot of those things are, are really good. So, for example, let's say their strength is good, they've lost a little bit of range of motion, they have some awareness, but but you know more. They're, they're quite, um, they're quite comfortable from a movement perspective. Then we may not image and when we progress them functionally. And that's probably a big element of our program is, uh, the philosophy around how we manage the initial injury and then through the next phases is a lot based on, um, their clinical presentation, their functional capacity, and then setting some really clear objective and subjective markers based off what the research and literature tells us, but then also uh, some of our um, experience. And we're really fortunate to have some great practitioners in regards to their experience with dealing with a uh, vast majority of injury. If then we determine that the athlete does need to be modified out of training and they, they're you know, technically in our reconditioning um, team, then that's when uh, Jack McLean and Kathleen Fajagan would start to take over their, their management and, a big philosophy within that component is how can we keep them integrated with the main group while respecting their native certain elements that they can't complete? Let's, for example, use that, that hamstring injury. If they're unable to run to high speed yet because they haven't earned the right to do that, can we still get them involved in some handball games and, and some uh, group warm-up-based stuff that may put them at, at, any, at a low risk of possibly... Uh, re-injuring or or re-aggravating that uh, pathology, but keeping them engaged with the group and we'll keep them integrated in the normal training schedule as well. So attending team meetings, if they've got line meetings, you know it's really important that one from an engagement piece, two from a motivation piece, but three the other thing you know if we've got new players or new roles and team structure, we need to make sure that if they're only out for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, they're able to integrate seamlessly and. And that's been a, a really big focus for us within our reconditioning and return to play is that no matter if they're out for one to two weeks or they're out for six to eight weeks, they're AFL-ready once they come back. And I think from the last couple of years, we've been able to to show that, that, that we've got real confidence in our ability to return players at a high level from a conditioning perspective, but also from a skill perspective to allow them to integrate back into AFL standard um, after missing the short or long periods.
0: I was gonna. I was gonna ask you this a bit later on, but uh, you sort of touched on a bit there. Um, in the modern game, is there such a thing as match fitness? Uh, do the modern fitness and conditioning programs negate the need for playing matches before a senior game, after uh, you know, before b- 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 you know, after an injury?
1: Yeah. Well, it, you you basically once again the the amount of time that they miss. Um, Will dictate a little bit of, of how much um, training load and, and training consistency they, they miss because one thing that we know that's really important to mitigate a re-injury or a subsequent injury, let's say someone's done a hamstring and then they come back and they do a pass, is actually training consistency and that comes in the form of not only just running loads but it comes in the form of obviously skill-based exposure as well. So. We're trying to get players back into those elements as quickly as possible, uh, even if it's at a moderate level because we know that that's uh, really protective. But it also helps to mitigate losses of aerobic fitness, as you're talking about. And Obviously, the game of Australian football is extremely hard and, and it's extremely tough to replicate the demands in that. But, but technology allows us to work back from what the demands of the game are required for different individuals. So that would be in regards to high intensity efforts and in regards to accelerations, decelerations and total volume, time on legs. And so then we can work back from what we know is uh, a normal range for a particular athlete, but we can also work back from what the worst case scenario, if if we've got data on on their previous year or, or their previous couple of matches. We can get a really great idea of what would be the worst-case scenario for them in a five-minute period, or a ten-minute period, or across a quarter, and that's where our sports scientist uh, Nick Murray is fantastic in that space. And he's done—he did his PhD in regard in regards to training load and its impact on injury and um, and athlete wellness. So we're able to then put that sort of information into our return-to-play programs to ensure that. If a, if an athlete doesn't have the ability to say come back through the VFL, we're still exposing them to those workloads in a constrained environment um, from a return to play and reconditioning perspective. So, yeah, it is one of those tricky constraints because obviously we want our, our list to be healthy. So if we're if um, if we're healthy and we're building re- robust and resilient athletes, you you may only have two or three guys in in a reconditioning and return to play program, which means trying to build out a, a 12 to 14K session with only two or three athletes. Um, uh, one, can be challenging for a motivational perspective for the athlete, but two, uh, you know, recreating the cognitive demands and the mechanical demands are quite quite tricky as well. So we're we've, we've, um, constantly evolving that and refining it and building it out, but I think we have a nice framework that, that we have had over the last couple of years that we're continuing to evolve.
2: Thanks, Sue, and um, just uh, uh, apologies if my dog starts barking. He's been suspiciously <laughs> quiet and he almost certainly will start barking now that I'm talking on uh, on Zoom. Um, uh, it, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but Tom McDonald did a podcast interview in January and he talked about how much footy had changed in his time in terms of the aerobic demands um, on all players and he was talking about himself in, in the context of needing to come off the ground um, and have the break to be able to run at intensity. Um and noting that how much high-speed repeat running is required, um, something I'm guessing will only increase this season with the move, you know, the shift it seems from many teams to a faster ball movement and more transition from the back half. In your time in footy, how much have the aerobic demands of AFL footy changed?
1: Yeah, I think the aerobic demands have always been there Um of the game, what you're finding now is with the constraints of the rotations um, and then, as you just alluded to, the speed in which some teams are moving and, and even to to a degree what we've seen with um, a decrease in some stoppages, you're seeing the ball transition back and forth, which means that that's uh, requiring players to be exposed to repeat high speed efforts with minimal rest and, and the aerobic um, Fitness element is is basically that system that you require to recover from those efforts and then be able to repeat them at the same intensity for long duration. So, if your eroded capacity uh, is poor, you'll be able to sustain those efforts for a short period or for the first quarter. But as the duration of the game continues, that's when you're going to have that inability to maintain that intensity. Um, throughout four quarters of football, and that's the unique element of Australian football with how long it goes for, and and the the difference in quarter length pending on goals, stoppages, and those sorts of things. Is it can, can quarters can go from anywhere from 26 to 38 minutes, but rotations say at 75 for the game, and so you need to be able to manipulate that based on every athlete has a different physical profile. You have guys who. Pure speed athletes and and aerobically they're just they're, they aren't um, as robust as some athletes. Some some athletes have a have a, a beauty of both, which uh, Alex Neil Bullen is one of those for us. And and then other athletes are really highly aerobic and then lack some of the speed qualities. So that's the that's the unique element of of an AFL list in that you'll have um, a mixture of those sorts of players and. And probably the uniqueness that Tom touched on yes. is um, now uh, you have lots of athletes who play different positions within the same game as well. So the requirements for them to play in different positions are different uh, depending if, if they're playing as a speed forward or a wingman on inside mid. And so your ability to then manipulate like within game around those athletes, can you need to be really fluid and agile with that
2: just with the players like Nibbler and um, I like guess Spargo and Hunter and Langdon, you know, th- those type of athletes, what would be the equivalent in another sport? You say athletics, what would be the equivalent type of yeah, athlete? It,
1: we, we have probably similar profiles uh, to 800-meter athletes. So if you look at um, the speed profiles and maximal velocities that they uh, that our AFL athletes can run, and then the aerobic demand is probably, yeah, similar to an 800-meter athlete. The Probably the one difference is obviously the contact element and the muscle mass that a lot of our guys um, uh, retain in order to play the game that we play. So that that's one of the constrictors in probably allowing them to reach the elite levels of aerobic fitness that you see in 800-meter athletes. But, yeah, when you look at the profiles, definitely a lot of similarities um, to those sorts of athletes.
2: I went to the practice game at um, St Kilda and up close on the interchange bench, it was remarkable how little fat the players, are, particularly those sorts of running players, carrying and you know that that, that they do look like eight hundred meter runners to the eye. So, um, <laughs> yeah. in terms of the need to have a premiership contending team, so like a, a team with a genuine you know, internally they think they're a genuine shot at winning the flag. Um, in terms of having such a team in optimal shape fitness-wise come grand final time, what does the uh, the training program look like over say the January to end of December, so like a 12-month period?
1: Yeah, well obviously our preseason period period um, is is a big component for us to build our aerobic foundation and our consistency of, of high speed and high poly. Now, the difference between pre season and then once we transition into February, March is they're not having to recover from uh, the contact elements of the game and uh, the unpredictable. Like, we're still obviously doing some forms of match simulation and contest in training, but the transition from that into in season, you're pretty much uh, getting 70% of your overall load in season from the game. And then the rest of that is made up of. Um, your training in in the in the week. The one constraint that uh, is is tricky since COVID is uh, our our game turnarounds, and this year it's better because we get the first fifteen rounds really clearly identified, and so you're able to look at when we have our shorter turnarounds and longer turnarounds. But the last couple of years where the AFL has held off the, the schedule, you you are really. Um, you struggle to plan forward what the ideal um, training structure is because you do need to uh, respect um, the accumulation of fatigue based on turnarounds, travel, these sorts of things. You know, to highlight the fact that we're after Sunday's game, we go into a seven day turnaround, we travel to Perth, and we are on a six day turnaround into um, Gather Round in Adelaide with the back to back travel. So, those sorts of things constrain. Um, how much training you can do, and those are the main manipulations that happen between now and, and September. Uh, the, the, you have to look um, at certain times where you can increase some of that training stimulus because uh, obviously with such a long season, um, as I mentioned before, your, your aerobic fitness being such an important element the, the game doesn't actually train your aerobic fitness system because it is so variable for different individuals. So you need to look for periods within the season that you can get some pure um, aerobic conditioning into the group to maintain or, or just even to try to still elevate that that capacity for some individuals throughout a season. And that's the, the unique balance um, within a year when you only have one mid-year buy and, and one end-of-season buy if you're... If you, Coming into September. So, yeah, it it definitely um, probably one element is, is, you know, looking at um, how we're rotating players both in game and then throughout the season, um, you know, being cognizant of of our playing list and how we can uh, continue to manage their fitness and fatigue across the year. And with the addition of an extra season, uh, an extra game, that's something that we've definitely discussed internally, but, uh, you know, with only being two rounds down. You're having those conversations um, about just being mindful of it, but obviously only two rounds in where, you know, we haven't accumulated a huge amount of fatigue just yet. Um, It's more as we progress through through the season.
2: That sort of actually leads perfectly into the next question. Just from watching the footage, you know, the training footage and reading the reports, the training reports and what the players talk about, that January and February is a really... You know, a heavy loading phase for the players that, as you said, sets them up seventy percent of of their load for the year. Does the team do another loading phase during the season, and if so, when and how long is that block of training?
1: Yeah, we're looking at that at the moment, and that's where the mid year period and the buy. You know, you you look for those periods, or you look in 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 and around period where you have nine or ten day breaks. Um, but once again that's all dictated to you by what you've done in the preceding two weeks because, as I mentioned before, you need training consistency. So if we've gone off the back of, for example, a six and a five day Turner, you can guarantee that in those two weeks, we've had a reduction in training volume because we just haven't been able to train too much. So then if, if we add um, a substantial amount of volume the following week, that may have uh, some benefit on, on a fitness element, but does it also, um, possibly put an injury risk element within that because of the lack of consistency. And that that's the battle. This year, unfortunately, we don't really get a true buy. Um, if you guys have looked at the schedule, we, we pretty much get three, nine or 10-day turnaround. So we play four games in five weeks in that mid-year period. So that's where we're currently planning around where we can get uh, an increased exposure in some of our aerobic uh, capacity development but also respecting that throughout that period between, you know, rounds 12 and 15 or 16, it's probably a period where the boys are also feeling physically and mentally um, fatigued. So we've also got to understand that um, the game can be uh, yeah quite hard, both mentally and physically. And, and so there's a balance of offering uh, the playing group um, some uh, recovery from that perspective as well. And that's that, that's that balance of um, finding – uh, the the balance of pushing hard enough to con- to continue to develop their capacity while respecting that um, there may be a period that we need to also step it back. Uh,
0: uh, so, when you don't need to get into too many specifics, especially if, especially if there's an IP component, but can you run us through what a typical week's worth of load looks like in the pre season in terms of kilometres run? and then perhaps uh, explain to our audience the science behind why after playing the practice match where we played four 25-minute quarters, we then proceeded to go across the road and run in 30-plus degree heat for 30 minutes.
1: Yeah, well, I can touch on the St Kilda game. Yeah, we we had kept that week um, uh, similar to a pre-season structure, and because uh, because pre-season is shorter, um, than what it has previously been and and we know that consistency of exposure to high intensity and high volume can be uh, really beneficial for developing road capacity but also developing robustness and resilience we saw that as a really important time for us to continue um, to build that knowing that then over the next month that was going to gradually reduce as we came into the season and so the the, the St Kilda game offered us an opportunity because also the game was constrained. So it was only 25 minutes. So naturally we knew wow. that um, our guys wouldn't get a normal AFL game um, exposure. And so we had guys that were only really 60 to 70% of what they would typically get out of a game. And so that built the foundation of where we wanted to build them to uh, for the end of that so that we could take that into the in-season period and prepare them because the last thing we want is to under-prepare them and then going into round one and saying lots of guys cramp because you've had this uh, reduction in in training intensity and training volume uh, from from the previous couple of weeks. So that was a, a little bit of the, the reasoning behind that, um, and it, it did uh, give us a really good transition into our in-season month. As we transition into an in-season model with a seven-day break, if we were to play Saturday to Saturday, the players would typically get a Sunday off and then Monday becomes a fundamentals uh, training session. And that's where we're we're looking at um, the recovery aspect from the game, how players uh, have responded. So they they would fill out um, a questionnaire and we have a few other objective and subjective measures that we use in collaboration with uh, the match data, to make decisions around uh, what players' training involvement would be on on that Monday, where it's a, a skill-based um, session, predominantly focused on getting the footy back in the hands and, and less around high-intensity, uh, high-interval work. And then the following day, the Tuesday, we have a lot of meetings um, and some breakdown aspect as well as some of our gym-based work. And then our Wednesday would be our main training session, where we're getting majority of our high intensity and high volume exposure within our drill selection, um, as well as having some specific um, conditioning elements um, or speed exposure elements for certain players, depending on what they got out of the game. Um, because every, it's so variable. Uh, also, you know, the variation between AFL exposure versus VFL exposure and continuing for, to best prepare our players who have played in VFL to. To AFL intensity because there is a little bit of a difference between uh the two levels and then they would go into a day off and then we have our our captain's runs which is you know uh focused around uh setting up uh for the, for the game on the following saturday so that's the breakdown of, the, of a normal week
2: thanks and um personally i'm, I'm increasingly of the view that in AFL footy now talent with talent um, and development and the list and where the list is at um, demographically and all of those things and luck with injury, that fitness level is is now one of the top three determinants of a team's ability to go all the way and win a flag. Um, Do you think that's a reasonable assessment?
1: I think talent is uh, probably number one. I think, um, yeah, your ability to have a resilient and robust list becomes... Um, the other element of that and, and aerobic fitness and um, strength become the two key elements of that. So I think, yeah, fitness definitely. It probably also relies pretty heavily on what your game plan is and your game structure. And and so our um, physical performance program is built off the foundation of how good Goody wants to play and, and how our football program wants to play. So if, if our game style was to change, uh, our approach to conditioning and strengthening um, from a from a gym-based perspective would likely change or have to adapt as well. So, uh, yeah, the fitness elements, I think, will will differ club to club based on the game style and the game plan. And, and that's, I think, been one of the things that has been a strength of ours definitely at the Demons over the last three years is just that alignment across um, both our
2: football performance program and our physical conditioning program. And just on the the tweaks to our game plan this year seem to be the, you know, the talk coming from the club was that we're going to be moving the ball a bit more quickly from the back half, and um, you know, using kicks to the corridor a bit more often. And does is that been a, does that meant that you've had to readjust your um, program, and you know, what, what's been the impact of that? What I would think is more of a tweak than a, a wholesale change, but what's been the impact of that, that shift?
1: Uh, yeah, the, I th- it probably just heightened the importance around um, the element of making sure our guide can sustain repeat high intensity efforts for the duration of the game. That was, that, I wouldn't have said um, too much around the foundational aspects adjusted, but it was definitely heightening um, the elements around how can we continue to make sure that our players can uh, reach those speeds and and reach them uh, consistently and frequently throughout the duration of the game. Yeah.
0: Uh, so when uh, you touched on the back-to-back travel in weeks four and five. Um, how big an impact is, say, a six or even a five-day breaks between matches? And I bring that up because we also have a five-day break coming up after Anzac Eve from round six to round seven. So how do you adjust to that scheduling?
1: Yeah, every athlete um, adjusts differently to travel and to um, the demands of the game. So there is an individual approach to it, but obviously in those shorter periods, you have to heighten um, the importance of the recovery strategies in those initial 24-48 hours, because you're asking the the, the group to uh, go back into high-intensity efforts one or two days earlier than what they typically would on a seven or an eight-day turnaround. So yeah, we we just work with the athletes on educating them that if. If these are some of the symptoms and the signs that you're feeling, then these are the best strategies to um, improve your recovery uh, and best prepare you for, for the next training session because um, it's really important that we reintroduce the skill-based uh, work and, and the, the speed-based work uh, within within the training week to then prepare them for, for the demands of the game on the weekend. Obviously, on a five-day uh, Turnaround that—that's kind of your the biggest constraint is you are having to just reduce volume and intensity game to game, and and almost just need to respect the fact that uh, the game is really hard, and uh, they've got substantially less time to recover from it. So if you go adding uh, load upon you know an already fatigued athlete, that's where you can either um, yeah increase their risk of injury or uh, just under prepare them for for the next game. So that's a real balance. And, um, yeah, we just take that on on an individualised approach while having some group-based protocols as well that we know, you know, sleep, nutrition uh, and hydration are foundational elements of recovery that everybody needs. And then um the other aspects of that can be somewhat individualised depending on what an athlete feels best helps them, uh, whether that be, um, ice baths or sauna, or compression, massage, um, breath work and mindfulness meditation and those sorts of things are all strategies that you yeah, different individuals may use to, to help facilitate their recovery.
0: Well, that sort of leads into our next couple of questions and, that's all, and, and we've only got a couple more to go and we thank you for your time. Um, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on nutrition. There have been a number of different diets uh, with players over the years. Uh, how does it affect someone like Big Benny Brown, who's a celiac, is a vegan, eats good and free, and that's him on one end of the scale, and then there's Mac, who eats a whole beast every week at the other end. How closely are you monitoring the diets as part of the players' performance on the track?
1: The boys, um, yeah, they work really closely with Lisa Milton, our performance dietitian, and she's fantastic in regards to the individual approach and, you know, um, from a Ben Brown, it's really making sure that he gets enough calorie-dense um, meals in to sustain uh, the requirements of, of his game because he does uh, run a lot and then there's, there's high demand for him. Within the role that he plays. And then, yeah, with, with Tommy McDonald, it's working with him as well to make sure that, you know, protein is, is one of the important foundations for him. But, you know, because of also the type of athlete he is, where he is quite a dynamic power forward, there's also a big requirement for carbohydrates and, and glycogen for him. So uh, they work really well with Lisa. And, and then we kind of build out um, some frameworks and guidelines in regards to. What they should be uh, fueling leading into main training sessions or games, but then also on the days where we're not doing much, offering them a little bit of freedom in regards to how they manipulate their um, their diet to accommodate those days, because there is the ability to to manipulate throughout the week because your demands adjust um, across the week, where we can have low volume and and low requirement days versus some high requirement. Uh, days in regards to our main training and then you know it's also working on the individual needs of, do they need to add muscle mass do they need to adjust their body composition and and what does that like, look like from a, a structure throughout the day um or um around their main training sessions whether that be gym based or, or field based yeah so we, we definitely it's one of the the cornerstones and over the last couple of years the support from um from Richo in regards to how we um, best offer that sort of those services for the players. It's been phenomenal and so it has been something we've invested in from a football club perspective uh, and Lisa has been driving that um, with the playing group. So it's been fantastic.
0: In terms of mental aspects of the games, you're obviously working with players that might need help Uh, with aspects of the game from a psychological perspective, whether, as you mentioned, it's uh, about, you know, players might be having trouble sleeping, which can affect them on match match day, or perhaps something like, uh, for want of a more PC turn, someone who's got maybe the yips in front of goal. Um, So how does that all work with uh, sort of helping players uh, from a psychological point of view?
1: Yeah, so part of our welfare team, we've got a performance psychologist in Steve Rendell who, works really closely with the playing group on, on elements of that and then as uh, part of the holistic program there's been a real emphasis put on um, the mindset aspect of, of how we're approaching every day and building purpose around every day and so that that's intertwined within every aspect of our program and I think that's why um, it's been such a powerful part of our program across the pre-season and as it's transitioned into the in-season because it's been embedded in what we do on the field. It's been embedded in what we do in meetings. It's been embedded in what we do uh, within the gym. And so the playing group has really bought into um, better understanding how we can continue to be better as individuals and how that influences the people around us, uh, but also how they can continue to build purpose within uh, their their individual um, program and own um, the development of their individual program because we also know that it, it is very much individualized in regards to that sort of approach. And so for some people, something like uh, visual imagery may be quite beneficial when you're talking about the goal-kicking aspect, but for other people, it may be as simple as some breath work or some grounding. And so that's where Steve and the coaches um, really come together to to build that out with the athlete and have them really involved in in that aspect um, of their program development and then it's just something about consistency it's about building a habit uh, with it and and uh, we know that that can take um, uh, tw- you know at least 28 days to build that habit and build that routine and um, it doesn't always um, give you positive outcomes but it's about being process driven in regards to each of those aspects and if we can come back to being process-driven um, and evaluating it based on that rather than just the outcome, then that's when we'll start to get our playing group um, better understanding how they can best prepare themselves both mentally and physically.
2: Just just on the psychology, um, so when in terms of the I'm just wondering the sort of impacts sometimes of psychology on performance on on match day performance it seemed to me that you know quite <laughs> with no surprise the the team were in a bit of shock when maxie went down and and I, I saw Jack Viney get interviewed at half time as he's walking off and he he looked as white as a ghost, the poor fellow and in terms of that sort of incident and given you know the potential impact on the team psychologically, I also looked at the track tracking data between the first round and the second round and, and a lot of our numbers in terms of distance run were were well down like Nibbler for instance was over a kilometer down on what he, he put out um in round 1 did, is there a link did, is there a link between something like that from a psychological perspective and then ability to i guess deliver the the physical stuff you know the running and and that's required yeah i think it would
1: be been- um, negligent for me to think that there isn't. It, it's hard to draw a, um, a, yeah, a clear line, but what you we do know from our playing group is the care um, and the love they have for each other is, is something that I've never seen within a football organisation before. So for, for our players to see their captain go down with that within the first uh, five minutes of the game Yeah, I've no doubt that that would have had an impact on their ability to stay in the moment. Whether that then has an impact on the physiological outputs, I think for some individuals that's probably true or or possibly true, but also in regards to how dominant um, Brisbane were in that first half, that constrains what some of our players are able to do as well. So there was probably a bit of a double-edged stored there, but then and then also how it impacts you structurally in regards to the requirements that Brody had put on him, uh, which he hadn't really had to deal with over his prior three games. So that was something unique for him to deal with, and then what that what that changes structurally, which can, can have a unfortunately a negative impact on possibly how um how our players can run from that perspective. So I think definitely whenever you have something like that, especially to, to someone like Max um, and a bit of the uncertainty around what your diagnosis was going to be, that players are going to, to be um, affected by that. And and that, you know, is is a great opportunity for us to, to learn from that and to grow because, unfortunately, injuries will continue to occur across the season and there's a, there's a big element of luck associated to that. And so, uh, it's yeah, we're not going to be immune to another injury in game and, if our players can reset a little bit quicker and and be able to um, ensure that we're performing our role, then hopefully, yeah, we we're able to deal with those instances and and not have it impact on our physiological outputs or um, our ability to perform our role
0: while we're talking about big maxi are you able to give us a bit of an update uh on how how he is and uh and what the time frame is likely to be
2: back
1: in two weeks (laughs) (laughs) well yeah obviously um it was great news that that um there was no acl damage um but yeah he's working back from the mcl strain he's um progressed really well in these initial couple of days so you know, we still have to respect um, the pathology and the healing time with that. So he's uh, got a few markers that he's got to tick off towards the end of this week to earn the right to get back to running, and then from there, um, it'll be that progression through agility and his Ruck specific skills to to earn the right to to get back. So we're hoping that he's back um, around the four to six-week mark, but this next probably two to three weeks will give us real clarity on what that looks like for him and. The one thing we know about Max is he loves to, to work and he pushes himself hard, and that's been a foundation um, for him probably uh, for the majority of his career. And, and so I'm really confident that we can um, get Max in, in peak physical shape to continue to, to dominate for the rest of the season. So that's where we're, we're looking at this next four weeks is how we can continue to set him up for success for the rest of the year.
2: I'm sure everyone at the club shared the Dees fans response and relief on Saturday when it came back cleared because uh yeah, it was it felt like a win almost despite the fact that we we lost, obviously. But um yeah, that's huge, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that's it. exactly
1: right. Exactly right. So no, he's um he's obviously progressed well.
2: Sorry, so um last one from me. Um i am just sort of reflecting on your role and I guess in many ways it's like the sort of peak of uh, in performance management at AFL level, you know, like to be in your role at AFL. But it must be a tough gig in some ways. It feels to me it's a bit like the umpires. When things are going well or really well, no one gives you any te- attention or focus and no one says, the high, you know, we're going well because how well the high-performance team is going. But if there are any issues, one or two soft-tissue injuries, you know, we struggle a bit in games. People are pretty quick to point fingers these days at the high-performance team. How do you go with that aspect of the job?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's a unique industry that we work in because every seven days is pretty much on, on review. And so if you work in the corporate world or in business, you might have quarterly reviews where you're looking at your budget and you've got another quarter to make it up, but every seven days... We're constantly reviewing, refining, and, and learning more about ourselves. And I I love what I do, and I'm really fortunate that I've got uh, Goody and Richo around to support me, but also our performance and medical team are, are easily the best in, in the industry, so they, they make my job easy as well. And, and I'm really confident that because of um, how closely we work um, as a, physical performance department with our football performance department. And, and we're intertwined that we're developing uh, resilient and robust athletes to play the Melbourne Demons player. So I'm really confident in that. And that gives me confidence uh, in regards to how we go into games and, and how we progress throughout the season uh, to know that, yeah, we're really aligned in that view across um, all elements of the program. So while, um, you never want injuries to occur and, and we, we would like to go undefeated. Um, unfortunately, it's a tough competition and luck plays a big role, but yeah, the, the support and the care that we have internally, um, both from staff and players, just makes my job really easy and, and ensures that we're constantly looking for ways to get better and, and just learning from, from each opportunity.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Selwyn. We really do appreciate it. It's been a very illuminating conversation on an aspect of the club that we we as supporters only get a glimpse of, but it does form a massive part of what we see on field come game day. So thank you once again, uh, Selwyn Griffith.
1: No, thank you very much for the opportunity. and I really appreciate uh, yeah, just the opportunity to highlight uh, part of our program. That was
0: Selwyn Griffith the high-performance manager of the Melbourne Football Club. Join us every Monday night live on demonland.com at 8.30pm as we dissect the latest Demons match. If you can't join us live, a new episode drops every Tuesday morning and you can also check out our growing number of interviews with players past and present in our archives. Go Demons!